Hello, and welcome to the Bleederboards. My name is Katherine Troyer, and here are your most recent play-by-plays. But first, a brief explanation. Based on our tournament variables, which is number of kills, percentage of text that a character was present, and critical audience reception of a text, as well as the bracket bonuses and penalties, we seeded the contestants based on their odds of winning battles in their brackets. When contestants were pitted against each other, our algorithm showed their odds of winning in that specific battle. We then used a random number generator to add an element of the, potentially, unexpected. The random number generator serves as our sometimes the unexpected happens. In order to win a battle, the character's odds to win must be higher than the random number. So for a character with a 95% chance of winning, that means they would only lose if the random number was 96 to 100. So they're probably winning that battle. But every so often that random number ensures the most unexpected battle. That's where the battle play-by-plays come in. These battle play-by-plays help explain how the battles unfold and how certain contestants emerge triumphant. We try to remain true to the spirit of the contestants, even if they have never faced these specific situations. As the tournament progresses, the battle play-by-plays will get more detailed to match the gravitas of the later rounds. In round one, we've tried to keep them shorter, so you may find yourself wanting to fill in some of the blanks. In the comment section of this video, join the conversation. Create chants for your favorites, smack talk the contestants you think are doomed to lose, and celebrate every victory with us. At the end of every night, the official bracket will be updated, and if you've downloaded a copy, it should update on your copy. And the transcripts of these videos, complete with links to resources, will be made available in the written play-by-play document. You can find the links for both of these in the description of this video. Our first battle of the tournament features Pamela Voorhees from the 1980 film Friday the 13th. She is seated number one for the final girls bracket. Her fight song is, fittingly, Jason's Mom by Ice Nine Kills. Pam, as we affectionately call her, is up against Lori Strode from the 1978 film Halloween. Lori is seated in the 16th place, and her fight song is, My Songs Know What You Did in the Dark by Fall Out Boy. Now we know what you're thinking. We were also horrified by Lori being in the 16th seed, but that's what the math determined. Just remember that this is gentle Lori from film one, not the kick-ass version we get in later films. So how do these two even meet up? And what exactly is a final girl? And can Pam really be a final girl? Well, let's find out. It turns out that it's fall and the camps are closed, but Pam's passion for killing does not have an expiration date. Pam figures that babysitters are kind of like year-round camp counselors. So she puts an ad in the local paper for a babysitter. And what a surprise, Lori sees that very same paper. So she decides to give Mrs. Voorhees a call. Carol Clover coined the term in her 1992 book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film. She wanted to unpack the slasher film formula and understand the role that the surviving female character had on male audiences, hence the term Final Girl. You can learn more about Clover's idea of the Final Girl by checking out the YouTube video, The Final Girl Trope Explained, as well as the Vox article, The Final Girl, a key part of every great slasher movie explained by Alex Abad Santos, which provides a handy dandy chart and a really great introduction to Clover's concepts. Hmm, now that we think about it, maybe Pamela Voorhees is not quite a final girl after all. 
The judges are beginning to confer. That has been confirmed, but for now, the mayhem will continue. Lori knocks on the door of Pam's old house. When Pam opens the door, Lori notices children's toys everywhere. But she fails to notice the butcher knife Pam is clutching behind her back, or the fact that Pam locked the door as soon as she entered. Lori's babysitter tingly powers activate as Pam only refers to Jason in the past tense. Lori asks to use the restroom but tries to bolt for the front door. It's locked, and Pam's knife is right above Lori's head. Lori claws at Pam and steals the knife. She slices through Pam's blue cable knit sweater, leaving deep gashes in her pale skin. But Pam has an advantage. Jason is dead but not gone. She grabs a picture of her and Jason hanging on the wall and hits Lori across the head with the picture, knocking Lori to the ground. As if Lori's injuries were not bad enough, Pam then starts to monologue about how Jason was wronged by counselors or babysitters or whatever it is, so they must all die. Lori comes to her senses and in an attempt to trip, Pam swipes at the old woman's leg. Pam quickly sidesteps Lori's offensive and Lori lets out a loud screech. Pam whispers in her most psychotic childlike voice, kill her mommy. Lori begins to tremble. And with that, Lori is out. Pam Voorhees wins the battle. She is uninjured. Wait, what's that? Someone's talking. It's Jade from Stephen Graham Jones's novel, My Heart is a Chainsaw. She's saying Pam is not a final girl. Well, folks, this is rather unexpected and unprecedented. We'll be sure to report back with any further developments. Until then, it's time for another battle. Our next two contestants aren't afraid to get a little bloody. It's Aaron Harson from the 2011 film You're Next versus Sally Hardesty from the 1978 film The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Aaron is in the number two seed in the final girl's bracket. She's sitting happily at home drinking a nice glass of red while listening to her fight song I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. Carol Clover in Men, Women, and Chainsaws wrote that the final girls often, quote, show more courage and level-headedness than their cringing male counterparts. It's not just the final girls live, then. We root for them to survive. So, I must admit, this made the final girls bracket a bit trickier to figure out. It was easy enough to figure out why villains would kill each other, but we had to really think about why these girls, we often so see as virtuous, would attack each other. So sometimes we had to get a bit creative. That's why, as Erin is sipping her wine and trying to unwind, Sally Hardesty, the 15th seed, is running from Leatherface, who just can't seem to take a hint that their time together is over. And she's running to her fight song, I Ran So Far Away by a Flock of Seagulls. Sally seeks a house in the distance. She can't see Erin inside, but she figures it has to be better than being outside. What she doesn't know is that this house will be what Clover describes as the terrible place. Clover argues that with the terrible place, quote, the house or tunnel may at first seem a safe haven, but the same walls that promise to keep the killer out quickly become, once the killer penetrates them, the walls that hold the victim in, end quote. Sally breaks a window and gets inside the house, but one person seeking a safe haven is another person's home invasion. Erin, as it turns out, has some trauma associated with people coming into her home uninvited. She grabs her axe. 
Sally screams. Aaron swings. And just like that, Sally is dead. While she'll no doubt be traumatized once she realizes what exactly has just happened, Aaron has won this round uninjured. We move to a new bracket. Stephen King. We've got it all. Well, not all all. We could run Monster Mayhem forever and still have King characters left over. But we do have characters from some of his novels, shorter fiction, and adaptations. Seated in the number one spot is Pennywise from the 2017 film It Chapter 1. This is not to be confused with the more cosmic version of It, and we are talking very specifically about the version of the dancing clown found in It Chapter 1. Pennywise's fight song is, of course, Everybody Loves a Clown by Gary Lewis and the Playboys. And Pennywise is lurking in one of his favorite places, in the sewers under Derry. Well, it's all fun and games until you find yourself standing above a sewer drain hearing someone, something, whisper your name. And unfortunately, Billy Nolan really should have taken a different route to the dance. Billy Nolan, the number 15 seed, is from the 1974 novel Carrie. Boyfriend of Chris and torturer of Carrie White, Billy is jamming along to his favorite tune, We Are Young, by Fun, as he takes the long, long way to get to another high school dance. In his utter douchery, Billy is wearing actual pennies in his penny loafers. Unfortunately, one of them falls off and the water carries it directly into the sewer. So Billy squats down to see if he can find his penny. Instead, he sees a different type of penny. King said in his 2003 acceptance speech for his Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters, quote, We can build bridges between the popular and the literary if we keep our minds and hearts open, end quote. Indeed, King is popular not just with readers but scholars as well. Check out, for example, Grady Hendrix's rereading of the King canon. His discussion of Carrie is insightful, and his description of Billy as the, quote, greasier boyfriend is spot on. Billy is greasy, and as he falls back into the water, he's also wet. But he doesn't even notice because his mind is overwhelmed by the truth that there are things much scarier than him in this world. Pennywise offers up the penny. Don't worry, it says. I know a shortcut to the dance. I can help you just pop on over. Pennywise is not a liar. No one is nearby, but if they were, they could hear Billy popping again and again. It turns out that it's not nearly as funny when the blood is pouring out of you. Pennywise wins uninjured, and now he's got a new pair of shoes. King has faced criticism over the years for his portrayals of female characters. For an interesting examination of King's female characters in a number of works, check out the 1998 book Imagining the Worst, Stephen King and the Representation of Women. In one essay, Carol Zimpf explains that there is little agreement about, quote, King's portraits of women, with some labeling King a misogynist and others observing that, quote, the King's women characters are weak, though they do not necessarily agree on the causes of this weakness. Two of King's female characters that spark much discussion are pitted against each other in this next battle. Annie Wilkes from the 1990 film Misery in the number two seated spot, and Mrs. Carmody from the 2007 film The Mist in the number 15 seated spot. This will be an intense match. 
King knew long before 2020 that grocery stores can easily turn into battlegrounds. Annie's on a mission. She needs to find a special type of paper so she can get back to reading about her favorite character. She reaches for the last pack on the shelf. At the exact same time that Mrs. Carmody grabs it. It's imperative that Mrs. Carmody have that paper. She has tracks to write and messages to share. Cue her fight song, My Way, by Frank Sinatra. The two look at each other, giving off impressive glares. Annie pulls hard on the paper, muttering, Dirty Birdie, under her breath. Mrs. Carmody, on the other hand, knows that the key is to be loud. She begins screaming, loudly. People begin staring. The manager arrives and asks if they can speak about this in his office. The two women begin to follow, each holding tightly to the paper. Annie is beginning to get nervous. With her free hand, Mrs. Carmody is gesticulating wildly. People are starting to gather. Annie sees her chance. She releases the paper, but as she does show, so, she shoves Mrs. Carmody into the ten-foot-tall towering display built out of twelve packs of soda. The display crashes down, cans busting out of packages left and right. For a brief moment, Mrs. Carmody meets Annie's eyes. It's for the best, Annie whispers. Some of the cans hit her arm, but Mrs. Carmody is buried. Annie sees the paper and grabs it, stepping on Mrs. Carmody's hand in the process. The crunch of breaking bones is audible. Annie Wilkes is the winner, but she is slightly injured. This injury will carry over into her next battle. She gets into her truck and the radio begins playing her fight song, Bad Medicine by Bon Jovi. The Monster Cruise Bracket has contestants who are often scary on their own, but downright terrifying in their groups of 3 to 20-ish. The first battle features the Armitage family in the number one seated spot from the 2017 film Get Out. They are at home listening to their family's favorite song, Run Rabbit Run by Flanagan and Allen. It is critical to frame Get Out as a film about race. In her essay, Get Out, Moral Monsters at the Intersections of Racism and the Horror Film, Isabel Panito explores how this film depicts racial politics that contribute to existing horror conversations. In the film, the Armitage family cannot see past the advantages of their life, of being white, wealthy, and privileged, to see the wrongness of their actions against black bodies. They believe not all lives matter as much as their own. And so when the Podowski crew show up at their door, the Armitage family feels no need to extend Southern hospitality. They tell the scruffy and dirty Podowski crew to depart immediately. The Podowski crew, number 16, seated, from Wes Craven's directorial debut film, the 1972 The Last House on the Left, are exceptionally creepy, and include a rapist-slash-serial killer, a heroin addict, a psychopath-slash-sadist, and a murderer. Perhaps unsurprising, their fight song is Creep by Radiohead. Unfortunately for the Armitages, the Podowski crew does not know the meaning of no. They catch a glimpse of Rose and they see the spacious digs of the family, and they decide that they've found their next hideout, complete with new playthings. Cammie M. Sublet, in her article, The House That White Privilege Built, Jordan Peele's Get Out and the Haunting Legacy of Plantation Slavery, explores the importance of this country home as a, quote, site of imprisonment, terror, trauma, and death. Specifically, Sublet says, quote, There is, however, something different and even more disturbing about the white privilege exuded by the house and get out, for within it lives slavery's haunting legacy. This legacy would, of course, not directly affect the Podowski crew. 
But the Podowski crew knows that a lot of monstrosity can be covered up under the veneer of being well-to-do. Living in this house will allow them to continue evading the police. Yet when they climb up the stairs to Rose's bedroom, she's not there. In fact, no one is on the top floor. So the Podowski crew decides to split up and investigate the house. And one by one, they each encounter a different member of the Armitage family. The rapist finds himself hypnotized and sinking deep into the sunken place. The attic is caught in a deadly game of lacrosse. The psychopath meets another psychopath, and the murderer gets experimented on, for the sake of science, of course. The Armitage family emerges triumphant. They are uninjured, and while they are not accustomed to having bodies to dispose, they, unsurprisingly, escape without any further repercussion. Road trips are a staple in horror. But what happens when instead of unsuspecting teens, the road trippers are cannibals? And what happens when those cannibals stumble upon creatures that also have a hankering for flesh? In Bernice M. Murphy's book, The Highway Horror Film, she argues that this subgenre of horror, quote, implicitly critiques the supposedly positive benefits of the modern culture of mass automobility. Things are getting too hot in Texas. So the Sawyer family, seated in the 15th place, from the 1986 film The Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, are road tripping. The first several weeks are, let's face it, just driving through Texas. And of course they are listening to their anthem, Pour Some Sugar on Me by Def Leppard. But eventually, they are out of Texas, and they are fighting over who gets to hold the map. And that's when it rips. So, they just keep driving. And, as one does, ends up in Alaska. Murphy argues that one subcategory of highway horror films involves, quote, strange and often uncanny encounters with mysterious adversaries who often engage in a deadly game of cat and mouse pursuit. The Sawyer family makes a quick stop in a tiny town, but they should remember how dangerous gas stations can be, because they are being watched by a group of thirsty vampires, the number two seed from the 2000 film 30 Days of Night. Their fight song is Bullet with Butterfly Wings by the Smashing Pumpkins. The vampires wait until night falls. The Sawyers are camping out in their van. But they've had a lot of jerky and moonshine. So, each time one heads out to find a tree, the vampires attack. Finally, there is just one Sawyer left. The vampires decide to make a rush at the van, but they are unprepared to meet Leatherface. Ultimately, of course, the vampires win, but they are majorly injured. And they now have a new team member. The Creatures of the Deep Bracket features contestants that are from deep space, deep sea, or deep in the earth. Our first battle features a creature from space and creatures from the sea, colliding violently at one of Earth's greatest resources, water. The number one seed are the Mer people from Mira Grant's 2017 novel Into the Drowning Deep. Have you ever wondered why most accounts of Mer people all have the same little mermaid vibe? This book has a horrifying answer. Our Mer people's fight song, Otis Redding's Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, might lull you into thinking these Mer people are gentle, but the truth is, is that you would not want to encounter them. It's interesting that our cultural and continued fascination with merpeople is so well documented. 
in her essay on mermaids, entitled Where Skin Meets Fin, The Mermaid as Myth, Monster, and Other Than Human Identity, Venetia Laura Delano Robertson argues, quote, the mermaid continues to haunt and enchant, playing off our dual fascination and anxiety regarding things maternal, marvelous, and marine. Mary Beth Louise Hutchinson, seated at the 16th plate, from the 1998 film The Faculty, is not interested in mermaids, but she is thirsty. Her fight song, Monsters by Ruel, is always running in the back of her head, even as she dips her toes in the water. But Mary Beth Louise was not paying attention. The water is not from a freshwater river, it's a saltwater tributary, and it is also prime feeding grounds for the merpeople. Mary Beth Louise may be a nearly invincible alien, but salt water beats alien. She begins shivering and becomes woozy, and as her skin begins drying out, she takes her natural form. That's when the merpeople attack. The merpeople are ecstatic. They gorge themselves on alien meat. The merpeople win, but they are slightly injured. It turns out that alien meat is kind of funky, and some of the merpeople get mildly sick. The final battle of the night features this year's only contestant from a manga, Parasites, which are aliens that come to Earth and mostly take human form, are from the 1990 manga Parasite by Hitoshi Iwaki. Seated in the number two spot, the Parasites have a symbiotic relationship with their human hosts. Their fight song is a bit on the nose, or should I say under the nose. It's Frank Sinatra's I've Got You Under My Skin. They are up against the 15th seed, The Crawlers, from the 2000 film The Descent. These cave-dwelling nightmares have also chosen a rather catchy fight song, Down Under, by Men at Work. These two sets of contestants have more in common than just good musical taste. There are a scary number of each. The parasites, after all, take over the whole planet, and the crawlers, well, crawl over all the caves. And both contestants evoke a sense of the uncanny. Sigmund Freud described the uncanny as something that was disturbing because it was both familiar and unfamiliar. The German word unheimlich means unhomely, and so this word is rooted in our sense of place and identity. A short introduction to the uncanny can be found in the video, What is the Uncanny? A Literary Guide for English Students and Teachers, produced by Oregon State University. They explain the uncanny is quote itself and the opposite at the same time. And we find this very disturbing. Animators and other creators usually try to avoid what they call the uncanny valley, when something looks too much like a real human, but also not quite close enough. In horror, though, the sweet spot are the things that make a shiv shiver because they simultaneously are us and are not us. The parasites are engaging in all the normal human activities, including spelunking. A crawler sneaks up on them, eager for a meaty snack. But the parasites are definitely the apex predator in this situation, and they have the ability to get inside of the crawlers, literally. The crawler parasite returns to its nest, and then the killing begins. After all, the parasites don't want to be hideous cave dwellers when they can be above ground, still kind of hideous humans. The parasites are the undisputed winners. They will definitely be a formidable foe for all of the other contestants. This brings an end to the battles that aired on May 9, 2022. Please join us for other bleeder boards where we will continue working through the battles as they happen in real time.